Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom and Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gift of Freedom. We're coming to you over www blogtalkradio.com backslash Black History. I would also remind you that this show, as as all shows of the Kiss for Freedom, are archived, available for free on iTunes. You can do that at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. Also, I would strongly suggest that you uh, send a friend request to our producer, Leslie Gist. That's L-E-S-L-E-Y-G-I-S-T on Facebook. And there you will see posted uh, information on programs, uh, other historical, black historical facts, and commentary uh, from individuals. We're calling in on that. Tonight we're going to talk about the Christina, Christina rescue, along with the personal liberty laws that developed thereafter. My guest tonight is historian Dwight Thompson. Good evening, Mr. Thompson. Oh, good evening. Thanks for joining us this evening here on the Gist of Freedom. And how long have you been at this history business? Uh, I suppose since uh, high school, I got excited about the the books I was required to read, and and uh, kind of fell in love with learning more about what was really going on in the history period, not just about it. Okay, and um, what led you to Black history, African American history? Um. I can't say that I was drawn uh, particularly to, to black American history. Uh, it's just a part of our overall history. Okay. So you're going to talk to us a little bit about the uh, Christina rescue. Uh, bring our listeners up to date on what uh, we mean by the Christina rescue. The uh, There was a, a mission the Christina Rescue Mission that was located sort of on the border uh, where uh, uh, Delaware and Phil, uh, Pennsylvania is today. And uh, I don't claim to be an expert on, on this particular uh, uh, a story so much, but what happened was is um, there was a freed black man uh, by the name of Anthony Johnson, um uh, who was there, and some slavers were trying to come up and take uh, some blacks back to the south. 
and um, when they approached, why um, they uh, Anthony and a uh, few of his friends refused to come downstairs, but from the second floor uh, window uh, used a uh, horn to uh, signal neighbors who came, and then there was a major confrontation out front between those who would uh, uh, take these blacks and return them to slavery. Um, and the abolitionists in the area. And uh, a shot rang out. One of the uh, the slavers were uh, killed. Uh, another one was wounded. Uh, the rest uh, escaped. But uh, it precipitated in the uh, local authorities coming and arresting quite a number of uh, uh, the supporters of uh, Anthony Johnson and... Uh, the uh, former slaves they were trying to protect. Okay, and William Parker and his wife were involved in this as well, were they not? Did that occur at William Parker's home? That's correct. Okay. Let me uh, read a little bit from the Facebook account that uh, Leslie put up. Uh, History will never know who fired the first shot, but the resultant violence included gunfire, fists, and clubs. When the death settled, Gorsuch lay dead and his son critically wounded. Gorsuch was the slave owner, uh, along with a gentleman by the name of Klein, who approached the house and attempted to um, get these two uh, freedom seekers uh, in bondage, bound up, and taken back. Uh, to the uh, to slavery. At this point, I want to introduce to you our uh, executive producer, uh, Leslie Gist. Hi, Leslie. Hi. How are you, uh, Preston? How are you, uh, Mr. Thompson? Uh, good evening, ma'am. Great, great. Um, I'm just excited that you're on the show, and um, I hear you guys are talking about the Christiana riot. Uh, would you explain how it ties to the reform movement? Uh, yes, the um, in the 1830s, 1840s, as uh, a time uh, known as the uh, Second Great Awakening, and uh, it's also known as the, the Millerite movement, and it was a period of revival throughout the United States, uh, beginning in New England and uh, sweeping throughout the uh, states. And at this time, there were a lot of uh, new ideas being shared. Uh, everyone was concerned with uh, the betterment of man. So it was a, uh, it was a time of, uh, of enlightenment. Uh, there were a lot of uh, new uh, things being uh, tried. Uh, uh, the temperance movement uh, uh, was beginning. Um, no tobacco, no alcohol. Uh, people felt it was it was important to, to leave, uh, live a clean life. Uh, at the same time, you had uh, a lot of other thoughts, transcendentalism, humanism, spiritualism, um, later evolutionism would uh, come out, or Darwinism, uh, as known, uh, Mormonism, uh, just, a, just an age of enlightenment, a lot of new ideas coming out. But uh, during these time of reforms, uh, w- the most... Uh, poignant uh, issues to come out was, of course, the idea of uh, abolitionism uh, 
freeing slaves, the equality of everyone. Uh, temperance was another large issue of the time period, and uh, by the 1860s, health reform would also be a very prominent uh, issue of the day. And, so earlier uh, today, um, earlier today, you had mentioned the liberty laws, and you you said it was a direct correlation between the liberty laws uh, and this Christianity uh, mission. And could you explain how the Christianity mission and the liberty laws and the future slave law all tie together? Absolutely. Um, the problem that the those in the north. Now, if if you got north of the Mason-Dixon line, it was thought that uh, any slave that had escaped and got north of that Mason-Dixon line would be safe because the north was deemed free. Uh, most northern states had enacted uh, uh, anti-slave laws, made it illegal to own a slave. Um, so we're talking right here at this uh, this critical time period, 1840s, 18. Uh, uh, leading right up to the Civil War in the 1860s. And a number of laws had been passed in the United States which really did not help things. The Compromise of 1820, in which in order to allow a free state of Maine to come in, the South argued you have to uh, put in another uh, slave state to balance the power. And the South was very fearful that that balance would uh, change. So... Uh, uh, the Great Compromise of 1820 was it would allow uh, Maine as a free state and Missouri as a slave state. But this compromise did not resolve the growing tension about uh, slavery and its its wrong and uh, you know the wrong and rightness of it. Um, the North was very uh, adamant that, uh, and this was really promoted by the uh, churches of the North. Um, they felt slavery was an evil; it was wrong to. Um, to control another person's life, to treat them like property or chattel. And so uh, with the uh, 1850 Fugitive Slave Law that passed, which authorized the federal government to go and retrieve these slaves, uh, restore them to slavery, the North said, there's no way. It's better to obey God than it is to obey man. And so they advocated the disobedience of these federal laws. And so the states and local governments went so far as to pass what were known as personal liberty laws. And these liberty laws made it illegal for any state or local official to cooperate with federal authorities in turning over um, people that come into the free territory for the purpose of returning them to slavery. Okay. Now, I did a little reading, and I read somewhere that the, the liberty laws uh, were first instituted in the 1700s with the very first fugitive slave law. And yeah, 1793, I believe, was the first set of Right. So they've, they've been around in the north uh, or in free states since the very first fugitive slave law, as you said, um, stating that they would not cooperate with the federal government. Now, what is the okay. difference between the 1793 fugitive slave law and the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law. The uh, the original uh, Fugitive Slave, I mean the Personal Liberty Law, um, mm -hmm. was was it was the attempt was to give uh, slave owners. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, what we're doing is actually going back to one of the original Fugitive Slave Laws itself. 
uh-huh. which was passed in 1793. And it was supposed to, you know, help uh, slave laws uh, get back to legitimate property that was missing. You know, they had to run away. And so uh-huh. the, the early personal liberty law that was passed at that time was basically uh, simply to say, sorry, you can't have them back. But then when we come into the 1850s, the fugitive slave laws that were passed were a lot more uh, stringent. It made it a federal crime. Not only but not only did it allow the uh, slave uh, catchers to go up in the north and claim any black to be a slave, only on the evidence that uh, of a witness. So they could lie, and there was uh, the... Uh, the defendant or the victim had no uh, so had no opportunity to uh, to give testimony to the contrary. So the these fugitive slave laws also made it uh, illegal for anyone um, to resist cooperating with the slave catchers. Now this was a front to the, the uh, to the anyone in the north that uh, believed in abolitionism, uh, particularly those who were churched and felt that it was a moral sin. And so what the liberty laws did at this point was exonerate the disobedience of the federal law, bypassing a state or local law that says it's illegal to to help those slave catchers. And mm-hmm. the irony is federal law trumps local law. But not in this case in the north, because uh, the citizens, uh, whenever these slave catchers would come north, the citizens, local citizens would bind it together very quickly. And uh, it was very clear by sheer number that the local law was going to be observed over the federal law. Okay. Now, uh, when you talk about these liberty laws, there's a movie that's, uh, that will be released, I think, in October. I had a lady on the show about a month ago, Renee Moore. And she founded the Solomon Northrop Day, that's N-O-N-O-R-T-H-U-P, Solomon. And he was a free man, born in New York. He was um, in Washington, D.C., and someone tricked him into believing that they would take him to get some work, and they sold him off as a slave uh, to a planter in Georgia. And he remained a slave for 12 years until his wife and her abolitionist friends in the North, in New York, um, used the law, one of these liberty laws, to um, free him, to uh, attain his freedom, based on what you said. Um, do, are you familiar familiar with Northrop's story? That I am not. Okay. All right. Um, let's get back to the Christiania m- mission. Now, when... When the um, slaver and his bounty hunters arrived in this small town, just give our listeners the backdrop of the demographics and what happened blow by blow, if you can. Um, the the uh, slave catcher. Uh, demanded that um well you may have to help me a little bit here uh on this. Uh I'm a little more 
little more familiar with the uh, the, the legalities here than I am with the uh, the individuals uh, all involved. Okay, well, well, whatever you know is fine with me because we had a very uh, long conversation this morning, and it was superb. So whatever you have to say, is, I think the listeners would love to hear it. Yeah, I I didn't uh, go much uh, go into studying the Christianity ca- uh, case so much is is what I did mm-hmm. to, uh, to to look more into. Um, you know what was going on during the period, and particularly, um, you know, today when we look at the history books, when we look at what uh, is 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 thought to have been history, uh, we don't recognize that that the comp the, the entire country was really inflamed over this issue. Uh, it gets swept under the rug under the guise of well, you know, the South was fighting for state rights. But when we look deeper, we see that the only rights that those states uh, didn't have in the Constitution, or actually that the Constitution allowed it, um, that they were actually fighting for was the perpetuation of slavery. And so when we look at this time period and we see that uh, great efforts were being made to help uh, slaves, you know, escape into the North. You have the Underground Railroad, and you have a lot of individuals in the North. You had Soldier Truth, Frederick Douglass. Um, um, you had so many people that, that were advocating the, uh, the the end of slavery. And I'd like the listeners to understand that this, that the churches of the North were very adamant about this. It was a very strong movement to the extent that when the soldiers in the Civil War, when the soldiers volunteered to help uh, Lincoln uh, to, to suppress the uh, this insurrection, this rebellion, um, it was well stated they were going to preserve the Union. And that in no means implied that they weren't going to free slaves. That was almost an assumed thing because for, for generations it had been advocated in the churches. Abolition was just taken for granted in the North. And uh, so today, when people go back and they read some of the literature, they they overlook um, how strong these uh, these convictions were in the local communities. Now, in the case here of the Christiana Mission, um, when they blew that signal horn, immediately the neighbors all came to rally. And I think what's really interesting for listeners to understand is the fact that the North was so well organized that not only were these homes um, you know, scattered throughout uh, different trails to the north, uh, they ran through Ohio and Indiana, they ran through Pennsylvania and Maryland and through New York. And um, uh, one man's home, uh, uh, John Byington, his home was part of the Underground Railroad. And, okay, uh, well, Preston is... Preston is on the line, and he's ready to share because you mentioned the the horn. Preston, could you explain uh, to the audience what he's talking about, what Dwight is talking about when he mentions this horn was blown? Well, as the slave catchers came into the home, um, William Parker's wife sounded a an alarm. It was a tin horn. And what that alarm did was notify the neighbors that slave catchers, were around her house. So people started gathering, uh, bringing guns, knives, shotguns, uh, sheets that they worked, cut grain with in the fields. And 
came down on the house. Gunfire broke out. So there was uh, shooting, stabbings on both sides. And I'd like to read an excerpt here from what you have posted on Facebook. The following day, President Fillmore sent the United States Marines, Federal Marshals, and vigilantes descended on Christiana, Pennsylvania, arresting 141 people, including four white men and 35 black men who were charged with treason. The largest number ever accused of that crime at one time. By that time, William Parker was well on his way to Canada along the Underground Railroad. It's also interesting to note that these men were taken to Philadelphia housed in the city's Morningside prison while awaiting trial. The trial lasted for three weeks in October and at the federal courthouse in Philadelphia. The federal prosecutors argued for a conviction of all the defendants, but Pennsylvania Congressman Thaddeus Stevens, and our listeners will remember that Thaddeus Stevens was featured in the... Um, Lincoln movie, uh, starring Tommy Lee Jones as Thaddeus Stevens. And he served as the defendant's attorney. He managed to get acquittals or dismissed charges for all the accused. In tribute to those who resisted slavery, the citizens of Christiana, Pennsylvania, named a number of streets after the leading participants, with each street leading to the now famous Parker House or the William Parker House. Now, and maybe, um, Dwight, you could help me with this. I understand from reading that uh, Gosuch, who was the slaveholder, had a surviving son who was very disturbed that his father was murdered or killed and that there was no federal convictions. And he swore vengeance uh, to a very dear friend of his, and that very dear friend of his was named John Wilkes Booth. You heard that story before? No, but it's pretty fascinating, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I'm just wondering if Mr. Gosuch, uh, the surviving son, was along with Mr. Wilkes or involved in a conspiracy. The... Uh, you know, it's uh, when we get around to certain circles, it's often said, you know, it's a small world. <laughs> because, for instance, in the abolitionist movement, um, you basically had the same people working with abolitionism as you had working for women's suffrage. And uh, they attended the same rallies. In fact, uh, often the rallies were combined. You would be speaking about abolition and, and the right for women to vote at the same time. So it wouldn't be, uh, it, it isn't a, a far shot uh, conclusion that not only did they know each other, they may have uh, talked about some of their uh, resentments and, and, you know, harboring some of their feelings that uh, it would later lead to ideas that would lead to the assassination of the president. Yes, um, and Frederick Douglass uh was also an abolitionist and was very much involved in the women's rights movement as well. But he kind of backed off on the temperance movement, did he not? Was he heavily involved in the temperance movement? Uh, 
I'm not clear at, at to what point he backed off. I think that uh, just sometimes uh, some issues were more important uh, at, at some, in some years than, than in other years, and so we uh-huh. see more uh, discussion. We see more speeches, you know, featuring certain things that uh, tend to be the the buttons uh, of, of the day. Um, so, like Sojourner Truth, you know, she was very adamant almost at the end of her life, you know, on, on both issues. Of course, uh, she saw uh, slavery come to the end with the uh, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. Um, um, Ellen White was another reformer of the day that was very uh, active, uh, promoting a temperance and abolitionism. Uh, she would pick up the health message uh, in the 1860s during the Civil War. Um, and so it it doesn't mean that the person perhaps gave up on it so much. It's just that, um, uh, like during the, the 1860s, during the Civil War, Douglas was very uh, vocal, very adamant, not only for the cause of abolitionism, the prosecution of the Civil War, but, you know, he was trying to advance the, uh, um, the right for uh, blacks to be armed and, and help with this personal struggle. Uh, for freedom, and so he was there to uh, witness the fifty fourth Massachusetts as they finally uh trained and and uh went, went head south for service and so eventually we had the united states uh, colored troops and this the fact that that these things are more important it just kind of shoved other issues like temperance in the background um just because it's sort of sort of the importance, you know, the the, the pressing issues of the day. Um, yes, and you mentioned that, uh, well, the slaver's failure doing the Christina uh, rescue, um, that kind of reinforced the anti-slavery movement in the North, did it not? It, it certainly did, and uh, added to that, when uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin was published, it infuriated the South. In fact, uh, Lincoln would make the comment when uh, uh, he met uh, Harry Beecher Stowe that, oh, you're the woman that uh, caused this great big war. <laughs> yeah. And, and a lot of things were happening. I mean, it was just... Uh, It's hard. I don't know if it's hard for us to imagine today or not, but at that time, they were, you know, communication was slower than it is today, where we have the internet and cell phones and, and the television, and uh, we just we know exactly what's happening all around the world almost simultaneously. But back then, you know, of course, news traveled slower. But even at that slower pace, it just seemed like so many things were happening all at one time. Because if you look at just the decade in the 1950s, I mean, 1850s, you had the the Compromise of 1850. You have the uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act of of 1854. Um, you would have the uh, David Wilmot Proviso, the uh, Dred Scott case. Um, you had so many of these incidents that that are happening. Um, you had the uh, Lincoln-Douglas debates, uh, and, and all of these. All of and, and then of course the publication of the uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, and so at the same time in all the churches, you know, there were, there were, and, and they had these little social parties where 
they would meet and discuss books that people were reading and writing. And um, it was a very enlightened time. And, and so uh, the communities, the churches, the homes were inflamed with the news of the day and, and the right and the wrongness of it. Um, and it certainly uh, uh, was cauterized in the Dred Scott case in which, you know, he um, he was actually uh, the ruling by uh, Chief Justice Roger Tanney was was that he actually didn't have the right to speak on his behalf. Um, the fact that he was designated as property. Now, uh, when we listen to the media today, we, we act as if, like with, with uh, Roe versus Wade, you know, that the Supreme Court rules and, and that's the, the final say. And there could be no uh, further discussion of the issue of, of, of abortion. But when we look at the Dryden Scott case, we realize certainly the uh, Supreme Court was wrong. <laughs> in their decision. Uh, Dred Scott should have had his freedom. He was in a free state. Uh, uh, Should not have been taken away from Can I jump in real quick, Dwight? Um, What what, uh, do you think, um, what kind of technology uh, lent itself to this uh, movement, this enlightenment movement, this enlightenment era? You said this was a time people had these um, literary societies and things of this nature. What was going on as far as technologically that you think caused all this to happen? Now, you're going to laugh, perhaps, mm-hmm. but the Bible was actually the leading technology of the day because the people were more versed and read in the Bible. And there were very significant events that, that, that were occurring. 1755, you had the Lisbon earthquake then in, in 1780, May 19th, you had the, the dark day in which the sun basically disappeared and the chickens went to roost and, and the cows came in and the people got on their knees because they recognized this is one of the signs of the end. And then on November 13th, 1833, you had the falling of the stars. It just it was a tremendous meteor shower uh, and the people recognized that from Bible prophecy. And so the people were very tuned in. So when a gentleman by the name of William Miller uh, had done some intensive Bible study and realized they were coming to the end of the 2300-day prophecy in Daniel um, and began preaching, um, the end, not only our country, but even over in Europe, people were talking about the nearness of Christ's second coming. Um they even went so far as to set a date, and they believed that October 22, 1844, would be that day. And today we know it as the great disappointment because Jesus, of course, did not come. But why this is so important is is people really were tuned into the Bible. They were really tuned in to their, their spiritual well-being. And so I think this was a catalyst for a lot of this reform. After the disappointment, I think a lot of people said, well, Jesus didn't come. After all, this was all a hoax or a play. They laughed at those who were preparing themselves as ascensionists and made fun, you know, where's your white robes? And and so it caused some people to go more uh, secular. But the people were still looking to how to better themselves and improve themselves. So I think this is part of um, other technology was the fact that it was cheaper to print books now and so you have authors like James Fenimore Cooper, uh, Washington Irving. Um, uh, these were some of the American uh, 
uh, writers that were, were getting published. Uh, people were still reading, uh, you know, the English books. But, uh, and they would come together in the evening. There was nothing else to do. They would come together and they would talk about what they were reading and share books. Uh, that's what led it to be a very enlightened time. Mm-hmm. Were there also, any similar rescue missions uh, going on around this time, similar to uh, Christiana? I believe there was. Uh, perhaps one of our guests uh, uh, might uh, have some more specific cases. Um, mm-hmm. I've read a lot about different uh, uh, the Underground Railroad, different routes, different homes. Um, mm-hmm. From the Millerite movement, we eventually grow the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Uh, Sojourner Truth became a Seventh-day Adventist and was a friend of Ellen White's. Um, the the very first president of the, uh, and I should say, uh, you know, in context here, that the Seventh-day Adventist Church was formed during the time of the Civil War. It became an organized church in 1863, and the very first president, uh, his home was up in Bucksbridge, New York, which was part of the Underground Railroad. Well, it makes sense to me what you're saying because, um, you know, Harriet called herself Moses. So if um, slaves could get a hold of the Bible, then it seems as though, um, as as you're saying, that mainly everyone had access to it. And it must have been, you know, must have been in almost every household for Harriet to be... um, you know, influenced by the Bible. Well, but we are aware that some slaveholders used the Bible to try to um, make the slaves more feeble and weak. Yeah, so here, here's it's helpful to understand, too, that right through the 1700s in the North, blacks and whites had a very similar status. There wasn't a, the, the caste system that grew in the 1800s in the South. So those in the North were well-educated. Um, we had poets and writers and uh, architects, and uh, it wasn't thought to be a bad thing for blacks to be uh, among the elite of, of society in the North. But after the invention of the cotton gin in 18, I mean, 1793, then all of a sudden there was this need in the South for a, a workforce, uh, a labor force. And with that came the need to dismiss blacks as not being human, but rather being property, so that they could be bred and treated like chattel, so that they could be, you know, so that the white conscience would not be pricked that they were doing a bad thing. And, of course, in the North, uh, they saw this as a very immoral thing, but this is part of that divide between the North and the South that grew during the uh, the early 1800s. The Bible was interpreted differently in the North. Um, they looked at the Jubilee, the, the deliverance. They were looking at uh, the freedom. In the South, they were, they were, they were, uh, they were looking at, well, God doesn't, you know, slavery existed. It's a matter of fact. But that's the way the Bible was written. The Bible didn't hide the evils of its day. Um, could you explain just, the law of gradual, the gradual abolition, um, abolishment of slavery, and also um, the the law that stated the um, prohibition of the importation of slaves, and, and then we can move on to chattel slavery. Well, 
in the in the North, you had many strong groups that you know advocated the the abolition from the very beginning. Um, uh, in fact, even in the 1600s, uh, you know, slavery was already being frowned upon. Uh, most uh, in the 1600s, uh, blacks and whites came over almost the same way. Uh, they came as indentured servants, and now what that meant is, is that you worked seven to 14 years, and during that time you would apprentice. Uh, you would learn a trade, whether it would be a, as a silversmith or uh, as a carpenter or a woodmaker, a shipbuilder. You would apprentice. And when your time was up, and that basically paid for your passage over here, but when your time was up, then you were a skilled master, and you would have saved enough money that you could start your own business. And the American colonies were extremely prosperous, um, and thus you have, uh, I, I'm sorry, I was confusing uh, Anthony Johnson earlier. Um, he was one that in 18, uh, 1640 was able to buy his own property in Virginia. And he had people working for him, both white and black. And I remember reading an article in History Illustrated, and boy, this must have been back in the, the 70s. But it, it, it shared some of us interesting statistics that 15% of slave owners were black slave owners. And so what we see here is back in these uh, the 1600s... Well, when, we, when we don't call them... Sl that wasn't slavery as we know today, chattel slavery. You're talking about they had indentures. More and more indentured. That's correct. Right. You yeah, can so work when your... We say, I don't think blacks were um, enslaving their own people into a lifetime of servitude. Well, that might get a little debatable because there are there are there is some evidence of that having having occurred. Um, but it's not common, and it, it often it gets why overlooked. Do you think, why do you think people would like to bring that up? If it's not that if it's not that common, why do you think some people feel the need to mention that very very small minority group? Why do you think that's, that is uh, now becoming so popular? I think uh, twofold. Number one is I think there is, among many, uh, a desire to be more uh, honest about what mm -hmm. things happen. And there there are those on both sides of the race spectrum that, uh, you know, want to bash the other side and want to, you know, point fingers and I think it's it's, it's more uh, honest if we realize, you know, all throughout history there has been slavery, and all throughout history there's good and, and, and bad men and women. That, you know, I, I think being honest is, is is one angle, but I also believe there's an onerous angle as well, is trying to say, well, you're not so holy yourself. Mm -hmm, and exactly. That, that can be very unfortunate because then we're not being honest. We're not... We're not there to have an honest discussion, take a look at what happened and why it happened. Um, you know, the, the, the name blame. You know, the name blame. I just don't think is, it gets us anywhere. Um, but if we I, speak uh, the truth, the, the, the truth is, uh, Preston is about to come in. Come on in, Preston. Yeah, let me uh, 
this uh, discussion around uh, indentured servants, and et cetera. Have either of you guys heard about the Texas legislature uh, changing their textbooks as if slavery, chattel slavery, did not exist, that blacks were not held in bondage, that it was an internship? They're saying now that, in Texas anyway, that blacks were in Well, Texas runs, the Texas runs the... Uh, textbooks all over the world, all over the country. Yes, they do. Yeah, well, I didn't know that, but so, they're changing yes. the textbook uh, for their for their school children in Texas. That You'll slavery see, was an internship. Yeah, and, and that's, where, that's why I asked Mr. Thompson, why do you think people are raising this issue, uh, you know, this issue about blacks were enslaving other blacks? Because we all know that will be the new story, the new narrative, and the new textbooks. So if we don't put these issues to rest and say that this was the worst form of slavery was here in the United States, and it was chattel slavery. And did you get a chance to look at the video, uh, Dwight, about how chattel slavery? Yeah, it was was, uh, an excellent video. The... Mm -hmm. In regards to Texas and what's happening in education today, there has there has been a lot of revisionism, and you'll see that in the textbooks you have less and less pictures, you have less and less specific stories of well, what happened in our past, less individuals, and more simple narratives. And this is a threat to history. And and as a history teacher, I can tell you that it really trou- troubles me that um, there's just great missions now in history, uh, like the 1820s, 30s, 40s, are almost obscured now. And yet this is our country developing. Um, you have, in 1830, you have Andrew Jackson passing the Indian Removal Act, forcing all Native Americans to move west of the Mississippi River. This is a, a tremendous uh, change in our country's history. Um, you know, basically moving out an entire race of people, and, and yet that's that's almost uh, unknown today. So it's important for us to, to look at the different events that are taking place. Uh, it's important for our young people to understand the story of Amistad and uh, how that slave ship ended up on our shores and uh, who was involved to uh, secure that that you know their their freedom. And to to look at the laws of that period, uh, I'm thinking even uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln. He was horrified when he saw slaves being sold on the block for the first time when he was running a little flatboat down the the Mississippi. Dwight, uh, excuse me, Dwight, I want to back up. You mentioned the Amistad. Uh, Tell our listeners a little bit about the Amistad, uh, what that was about, and... um, if indeed it lend itself, or how did it lend itself to the format to the reform movement, which later on brought about the Freedmen's Bureau and the establishment of HBCUs, historically oh, black colleges and universities. They're so important, aren't they? But the Amistad yes, was a spaceship. The, the Spanish had uh, captured slaves, put them on board ship. Um, but the uh, slaves were successful in being able to take over the ship and was simply adrift. 
and it was eventually uh, uh, what would be the right word to use here? Uh, captured wouldn't be the right word. Uh, it was kind of seized by the U.S. Navy. Um, they went on board, and and you know who was in charge here, and, and where did you come from? Well, language was an immediate barrier right there, and so they towed the ship back to the American shore. <coughs> And the question was, who are these people? Where did they come from? To whom do they belong? You know, are they the, their own people, or does somebody have uh, uh, any claim on it? Well, Spain, you know, uh, jumped right in and said, yes, that's our ship. We, we, uh, we demand that you return that to us, to our custody. And the U.S. said, well, we're, we've got to... We're going to have to uh, investigate this and verify your claims, and that precipitated into a, a tremendous court struggle in which uh, none other than uh, former President uh, John Quincy Adams came to their defense. <coughs> they were also wanting they were also wanting the return of the slaves as well, right? The cargo. The Span- yeah, the yeah. Spanish. The Spanish wanted. They wanted their cargo back. They wanted their slaves back. But uh, now, are you end, familiar with Louis Tapin? Some of the the people that were involved with the um, uh, the lawyers. Uh, I'm familiar with them. I wouldn't say I'm an expert on them. Okay. Well, um, they formed the American Mission Association. I think I had it right. AMA, yeah. as a result yeah. of being able to successfully um, aid the Amistad uh, captives. Do you want to elaborate? Uh, I'll defer to you. Okay. Well, they, as a result of helping the uh, Amistad captives, they decided to form an AMA um, organization, and they formed uh, HBCUs, Elman, and different other uh, black colleges. And um, they also were involved with the Freedmen's Bureau. Um, are you familiar with the, Would you like to talk about the Freedmen's Bureau? Well, if not, I understand. We can move on. They provide mm-hmm. a financial assistance um, that many cases were brought forward. They were able to uh, buy uh, people out of slavery. Uh, it was also kind of a... Um, protection organization, you know, provide uh, law support uh, as well as personal uh, support, you know, uh, uh, to help these individuals uh, and to help them to get established. Mm-hmm. Now, earlier you mentioned um, the Indian removal, and we talked right. on the phone this morning about the Indian removal, and um, Preston, which is a host, you recall Mr. Katz, the author, Mr. William uh, Lauren Katz, author of Black Indians. Right. Mm-hmm. He explained that the the removal of the Native Americans was the slavers' last um, effort to get rid of every avenue of freedom for the enslaved people because the Indians were, no, uh, were, were known to help us. Um, they were in the south in Georgia, and they had to go. Um, Florida was another place. Yeah, you had the Seminole Indians there. Right. So if you can go into 
explaining how and why, what was the motive as far as from um, a slave owner. Why would they want to remove the Indians? Why would they attack New Mexico, Florida, and that? Could you just talk a little bit about that? Well, we've always seemed to have two classes of individuals in this country, those that seek the good of others and those that seek the the, the bad. And, you know, we know when the, the Europeans first came over, um, uh, particularly the English came over, a religious liberty was sought. But they didn't always extend that religious liberty to, to others. You know, it's worship as we think uh, you should worship. The uh, the Puritans, the Separatists, as they first came over, were, were very, very strict. But eventually... But, they, the, but uh, let's back up. But did they engage in chattel slavery, any of these religious liberty people? Or were they Catholics? You know, we, we talked about making sure we made a distinction between Catholics and Christians, chattel slavery, yeah. and indentureship. Well, see, the, the Spanish came over earlier than the English. They came over in uh, 1530s and explored mm-hmm. what's now the uh, the Southwest uh, and came up uh, through uh, New Mexico. And they brought with them a priest and the... Basically, the conquistadors or the Spaniards were looking for gold. They had yellow fever. And every every, every time they went farther, they kept getting told, yes, there is a city of gold, uh, just keep going north. And the Indians were just trying to get them out of their area. But they brought her along the uh, Catholic uh, priest to baptize and to sort of uh, Christianize these, these Indians. But in the long run, what happened was they simply enslaved the Indians, forced them to build their... Uh, the churches and, and and strongholds, and so the history of the Southwest isn't a very pleasant one between the Spaniards and the uh, the Indians. Eventually, the Pueblos would revolt in 1680 and would drive the Spaniards out of what is now New Mexico. But throughout, the, the Spaniards also controlled Florida, that was owned by Spain for a time in the early 1800s. So you're talking about uh, the Native Americans there. Uh, the Seminoles were there in Florida, uh, in part of Georgia. And uh, the blacks, uh, to a large extent, intermarried with those Native Americans. So, yes, the Natives were a threat. Um, then a, lo- a lot of what we're talking about comes back, it's, it's outcome of the War of 1812. In that war, it was kind of our second war of independence, the, after the American Revolution, uh, in the in the Treaty of Paris, the British were supposed to have pulled out and left America. But instead, they stayed in Canada, and they stayed in the Great Lakes area. And they started agitating the Native Americans against the American colonists, hoping to create enough unrest that when they were done fighting with Napoleon, they could come back and retake the Americas. And so they were agitating the Native Americans against the American colonies. Now, some Americans sided with the colonies. Some sided with the British. They figured the Americans don't have an army. The British just defeated the French. So it's smart to, to side with the, uh, the British. 
and that led a confrontation between the Indians and the Americans. And so you had General Matt Anthony Wayne, you had uh, um, uh, Andrew Jackson and others who were, were fighting the Indians uh, in those wars. And so that's, that helped generate this anti-Indian attitude, this anti-Indian that they're, they're troubled, that they need to be removed because they're impeding our progress of settlement. Um, okay, before you jump in, Preston, let me just ask this one question. Weren't the slavery slaveholders anti-anybody that was about liberty? It wasn't just Indians. It were anti-libertarians. If anyone fought for the liberty of an African slave, they were against them, period. I, I would have to respond that there is truth to what you just said, but I think it is also, it depends on the group and the location. Um, there, there is a lot of people north and south that, that, that opposed slavery. There there were both there were people both north and south that favored slavery. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, Democrats won the election of 1856 by putting a pro-slavery northerner into the White House. And that was James Buchanan from Pennsylvania. So, you know, the, the groups were scattered to a large degree. It wasn't like this group was always anti-everybody. Um, mm -hmm. but, but you did bring to mind uh, something that's interesting, because in the 1840s, um, you had the, the growth of the Free Soil Party, which wanted the territories to be free of slavery. And you also have in the late 1840s and in the 1850s the birth of what was known as the Know-Nothing Party. Now, our history books today, I think, call it the American Constitutional Party or has some other fancy name. And the history books today uh, say that they were anti-immigrant. But in, mm -hmm. in true reality, it was very anti-Catholic because so many Irish and Italians, uh, Roman Catholics, were immigrating into this country, and they were afraid that the same problems over in Europe would happen here in this country uh, with a growing Catholic population. So it, it wasn't always just black and white or Native American. It was also Protestant versus Catholic, and, and it, it, it was a very complex time, and there was certainly... If you had hate in your heart, you could always find somebody to hate. Right. That's but it was right. also that's, that is my but, point. Yes, and it was also a time though a lot of people were learning to rise above that and learning to outgrow some of those uh, attitudes and and it was a real test to Christianity uh, during this time period. Right. Right. And do you think Darwinism hijacked Christianity? A repeat, please. Do you think the Darwinism movement hijacked the Christian belief in tenets? Uh, I don't think it hijacked... In the public schools. Uh, okay, uh, putting it in the context of the schools, then I, I would be more inclined to say yes. Uh, I just find hijacked a, 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 a case-specific term. It certainly... With one of the many uh, isms, I think, that was produced at a time to confuse Christians, to 
confuse mankind at large. I, I, I see that we are involved in a great controversy between good and evil, between uh, Christ and Satan. Um, and, and so I, I see everything happening in our country's history, the formation of our country, I believe was, was God-inspired, but then Satan was right there to, to hijack his, uh, you know, his good intents to, to, and to use the evil of man to do well, wicked things. And I think I think the church and the political system joined hands. Uh, we're talking about um, Andrew Jackson and the 1830 removal. That was over gold. G O L D was founded. What does that Georgia. do with the church? How does that relate to the church? Well, the church, uh, the church missionaries were already there. They accompanied uh, the five civilized tribes. They um, what is Catholics? Well, no, actually, um, amongst the Cherokees, anyway, it was a group uh, from Germany. I forget the name of the mm-hmm. of the, uh, the particular brotherhood right now. Mm-hmm. But they were all kind of missionaries, uh, Baptist, Catholic, uh, Germans, um, there in uh, Indian Territory, attempting to civilize. And by civilization, part of that was to bring them to the uh, worship of one God as opposed to the many gods that they may well, have worship. Well, I've country. had plenty of debates about, you know, the Christian uh, movement in America, the movement that freed and abolished slavery, being um, tied together with different um, other movements who have, label themselves as the church. They're not the same. Uh, the Southern Baptist is not the same as Martin Luther King's um, ideology. So you can, you know, I think it's very unfair to the righteous try to blend them all in as, as one or to paint them with a broad brush. And so these are the same ideologies that um, slaughtered the um, Native Americans. I think that's unfair. Um I would I would uh, agree with because I, I I this is the first time I heard gold associated with the 1830 Indian Removal Act because it unfortunately I mean in one way that would be that certainly became the ideal later on with the Black Hills you know when gold uh, was discovered there and. Uh, but in 1830, I think it was a more erroneous drive just simply to eradicate the, the Native American from um, the what we call the Northwest Territory at the time, you know, the Great Lakes area, and just simply to open that up for, for settlement. Um, well, the five civilized tribes are in the southeast part of the United States. That would be Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi. And gold was found in Georgia. So do you and think those people are real Christians, are, are religious I'm people? Not, I'm not saying that they're not <laughs> real or fake Christians you know, or whatever. But there was a hand-in-glove relationship between government and religious organizations at the time. Well, this is the only country that doesn't force a religion on the citizens. In fact, there's an a, a amendment that says the separation of the church and state so that no one is threatened by the government. 
when they want to practice whatever they want to practice. As Christians, as speaking for myself, we think it's a better uh, nation that there are different people who uh, who worship and uh, practice different faiths. We are we believe that human kindness will trump any religion, and if we treat each other the way we want to be treated, we are no threat, and we don't we are not threatened by anyone else. So, I think America and the Christian belief that it was founded on, and the amendment that says the separation of church and state is the uh, the root of this country's spirit. And we believe that the goodness of the people will uh, govern the government in the right direction if you are first willing to vote, secondly, active in voting. And that's all I have to say. You can you add something to that comment, Dwight? I I, I appreciate what you just expressed because I share that same belief that that God had best intentions, and God is always willing to you lead us if we're willing to be led. And and I believe that America is exceptional in the fact that our our colonies um, prospered where many others did not. And I believe also that um, our American law is a combination of both Indian and English law. Um, ben Franklin drafted the, the, the first, basically, uh, uh, the Articles of Confederation, uh, largely from Iroquois law. And those founding fathers, as we refer to them as, uh, John Adams, would would say, you know, our, our second president, he would say that he envisioned that we would become a beautiful, uh, distinct people. That he saw that the Indians, the blacks, the whites would all intermarry and we'd become a new, beautiful race. And and, and this seemed to be a lot more prevalent uh, in that time period. And it's it's overshadowed by the rise of slavery in the 1800s after the cotton gin was invented. And unfortunately, I think people project and think, and, and and to a degree, I think this is part of uh, where Roots uh, did not give us an accurate re- representation of, of history. It's a representation of a family. But when we look at history, slavery grew in the 1800s. But yet, the, the, the textbooks and people's assumption is is that, his, you know, that slavery was like that, the chattel slavery was like that, all the way back in time, all the way back to the 1600s, and that's not the case. Right. And, and, we, and what you're saying is during the Enlightenment period, uh, uh, that period, slavery, chattel slavery, was uh, non-existence or, or on the rise. The Enlightenment period and the religious awakening, it, they're not in correlation with chattel slavery. I think in the early 1800s, you had both the need for a workforce in the South, and you did have an enlightenment in the North, mm-hmm. which really drove us to a civil war, because there was no uh, compromise to be had between those two ideologies, where the South mm-hmm. was justifying slavery, and, uh, you know, you use the term chattel slavery very accurately there, where they did not treat blacks as even humans. And in the North, on at the other hand, we're becoming very conscious, very uh, uh, alert to the 
um, the, the wrong, the moral evil that this was. And, 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 and as you said earlier, you mentioned earlier, the liberty laws were passed by the religious, the reform movers. Well, yeah, right? and which, which instigated the fugitive slave law. Well, and I referred to a lady by the name of Ellen White, and she had a vision in which she saw that the Civil War was not going to be a short and easy war. And it was her belief that the North had to be punished as well as the South for having compromised and allowing slavery to endure for so long instead of taking a stand back at the beginning with the Constitution and, and instead of compromising in 1820 and 1850, that the North should have stood strong and stood firm for the rights of all mankind. So she saw the Civil War as a punishment for the North as well as the South. And I, and I think that's a very interesting perspective and really adds a lot, I think, to our understanding of, of to what degree the North was driven to end slavery and to what degree the South, even those who didn't have slaves, would fight to protect it. Right. Question? Yeah, I'm here. Do you have anything uh, well, to add? Um, not particularly um, mm -hmm. around um, anything that I've heard so far. I'm just getting an education mm -hmm. here. Right, but Lincoln, he, similar to the lady you mentioned, he also, you know, the, his famous speech, The House Divided, he felt that the country was going to be punished for slavery. Well, quite right. Am I right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, can you elaborate? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch that by a different angle, because I have often heard people take Lincoln to task when he made a comment, he says, if I could preserve the the Union with slavery, I would do that. If I could preserve the Union without slavery, I would do that. Mm -hmm. And they tried to make Lincoln look soft on slavery, almost as if it didn't matter to him. And that's a very mm -hmm. wrong interpretation. As in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he was very clear. His convictions were very strong, and that's why he was chosen to run as a Republican candidate. The brand-new Republican Party was for the sole purpose of eradicating slavery. And they chose wisely uh, him for a candidate. But when he made that comment, he made that comment as a lawyer, which he was. And in lawyer speak, you stick to the very topic that you're addressing. At that time, he was addressing the union. And it did, uh -huh. it did not change his true character in wanting to see uh, the Emancipation Proclamation brought out. Uh, I've heard people criticize that, well, but it was it was two uh, years into the war. Well, yes and no. He prepared that at the end of the first year, but his cabinet said, well, wait, wait till we have a victory. The time isn't right now, so wait till we have a victory. And we had that victory, the Battle of Antietam, in September of 1862, which was the second year of the war. So he... Then he was able to put that out there, and then it became law January the 1st, 1863. And mm -hmm. I, I think they do get injustice when they try to imply that he was wishy-washy on slavery, because he never was. Mm -hmm. um, but what do you think about the movie Lincoln? 
Um, I, I'm always interested. It seems like every movie, they try to come with a, a different angle and uh, a slightly different perspective. Uh, a lot to just, I know this doesn't give a lot of information, but I enjoy them all. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I enjoy I, the film, too. I saw it. I liked it. I like each one that brings out something different. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they feature more than that, you know, the his, the history or the war that was being going on. Sometimes they want to take his personal side and um, show the more a personal Lincoln. And I, I think this is all good. I, I, I'm just anxious to see films on like Frederick Douglass and, 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 and films that deal into the rest of our history. Mm-hmm. So people, they can have honest discussions of what led to the Civil War. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Frederick Douglass because I have a quote from him regarding the Mexican War. And this is what he said. He said um, that there is one, if there is one less oppressor left on earth, for my part, I would not care if tomorrow I should hear of the death of every man who engaged in that bloody war in Mexico and that and that every man had met the fate he went there to perpetuate upon unoffending Mexicans. So, you know, he was very, very strong. He got in trouble for saying that about hoping that every slaveholder or supporter died in that war. Well, you know, this is a whole other topic, talking mm-hmm. about the Mexican War, which would mm-hmm. add so much light on, on this uh, discussion currently, because Abraham Lincoln, and we also mm-hmm. spoke about the former president, uh, John Quincy Adams, were both very much opposed to the war. And we, the Mexican War, I believe, is one of the least understood and probably the most inaccurately described war we've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, the assumption is always, and this is the way it's taught in most modern classes, the assumption is that the, the United States were the aggressors and we were just trying to occupy more uh, territory for uh, the sake of manifest destiny. And what gets left out is the fact that the North was very opposed to the war, hence you have from Massachusetts, John Quincy Adams, and from Illinois, you have Abraham Lincoln. They were opposed to the war because they felt like the South just wanted to expand slavery. So so the North as a region was opposed to the war. Ironically, the South was also opposed to the war. And expressed in the sentiments of John C. Calhoun, the South was opposed to the war because the annexation of the Southwest would mean that those Hispanics and those Native Americans would be equal to whites. And they didn't believe that indigenous populations could be equal to whites. And so they opposed the war for very racial grounds. And that is something you certainly don't read in textbooks. What what did the Mexicans say about slavery in expansion? Didn't they pass a law because they had recently... Uh, liberate themselves, and they passed a law saying that um, the uh, whites from America could not bring their slaves into Mexico, and there were skirmishes going on prior to the war. The the Spanish certainly had slaves, and there's no doubt about that. 
In Mexico. Uh, in Mexico, after after they became independent, they with, with abolished this, slavery. Yeah, let, let me give the give the setting there slightly. So okay, in New Spain, there there was slavery. Uh, Mexico won its independence September 16, 1821, and established their constitution in 1824. Uh, Did they have the, was their first president black? Afro-Mexican? Uh, he was he was indigenous. He was basically Indian. Okay. Keep, all right. I'm sorry for interrupting. Go ahead. So you have Brigadier uh, General Stephen Kearney, who came with an American force into New Mexico in 1846. And when he came in, the, the Mexicans were all afraid that uh, the Americans were going to eat their children, and, I mean, you know, the terrible lies had been spread. And the first thing that uh, General Kearney did was, through interpreters, he expressed to all the populations, first in Las Vegas, New Mexico, and then later in Santa Fe, we are here to protect your culture and to protect your way of life. We didn't come here to change that. And he wrote what's known as the Kearney Code, which took from the uh, Declaration of Independence and took from the Constitution, and but basically helped the people realize the Americans were not here to change them. But there's a 25-year gap between Spain and the United States. And during that 25-year gap in which Mexico became independent before the Americans would come in and occupy, Mexico had very little influence in New Mexico whatsoever. We were that northern province. We were that kind of a buffer zone between the, the, the Indians and the, uh, the the Spanish down in Mexico. And so what was happening in the 1820s and 1830s during this time was uh, a lot of trade. The Mexicans tried to keep the French out. But once the French uh, sold their interest to the United States, then the um, all of a sudden there was an American trade. And the New Mexicans loved the American uh, trinkets and pots and pans and whatever they could get from the Americans, they loved it. So the uh, Spanish Trail was was established. Um, but in regards to slavery, as the tension between North and South uh, continued to grow, uh, it, it affected uh, the, the Southwest very little until Mexico, uh, Texas won its independence. When it won its independence, Mexico was determined to go back and retake Texas. And Texas, in the meantime, was trying to assert itself to the Rio Grande. So in 1841, they sent a party, um, the Santa Fe Expedition Party, to try to take Santa Fe, and then they would claim the land all the way to Rio Grande. Well, the Comanches pretty much chewed up that party, and what was left, uh, Governor Armijo took a little band of soldiers and and they captured them and sent them down to Mexico City. Only eight survived. But when the Civil War broke out, well, prior to the Civil War, uh, New Mexico had the chance to uh, uh, vote uh, on the idea of popular sovereignty. Do you want slavery or not? And New Mexico vote, voted overwhelmingly, no. So we remained a free territory. But in 1862, General Sibley brought in a column of Texans and tried to take New Mexico by force, and they were defeated at the Battle of Glorieta Pass. Um, Hispanics 
joined, we uh, formed five regiments of volunteers to fight the Texans. Uh, most of the soldiers spoke Spanish. Uh, Colonel Kit Carson commanded the first New Mexico Volunteers. And uh, where he had a, uh, uh, an Anglo captain, he would have a, a Hispanic lieutenant. And if he had a Hispanic captain, he'd have an Anglo lieutenant so that they could translate and there'd be no uh, problems with uh, translation. Um, but the history of New Mexico in the Southwest is a very unique history. And uh, the, uh, it's the only state today that's revised with so many cultures existent. Okay. Well, you did an exceptional job. What say you, Prince Preston? Um, he made a comment, a reference to the Comanches. Oh. And uh, I just wanted to let our readers know, and, and maybe you too as well, if you haven't read The Empire of the Summer Moon, Quanah Parker, Rise and Fall of the Comanches, the most powerful Indian tribe in American history, by F.C. Gwynn, G-W-Y-N-N-E. And the Comanches were Plains Indians. Now, getting back to the Indians in the southeast, and that religious group I was trying to think of is known as the Morovians. That's M-O-R-A. The and they and the Cherokee Nation here recently released five volumes, the Morovians amongst the Cherokee. They were also uh, went into the Muscogee Creek Nation. Right now I have three of those volumes, and I intend to get the other two as well. Uh, not to learn from the perspective of the indigenous people, of what they saw coming into their country, the religion that was brought into their country, the God that was brought into their country, and how some of those thoughts may still hold true today amongst in, uh, the indigenous populations. Uh, here in this country, so do you, do, when, when we talk about um, a people being captured and brought over here from Africa, and we talk about the Native Americans being slaughtered. You know, when we talk about these things, which one do we weigh heavily, more heavily? The weapons, the force, the violence, or the spirit of one religion over the other? Which one do you think was much more powerful and more influential. What I tell people about uh, Africa and Africans being stolen from Africa with the Bible and missionaries, to me it sounds like, you know, that these slavers came off the slave ship with Bibles and smacked these Africans upside the head and said, get on this ship by force. The reality is slavery is extremely violent. And I don't think there's any textbook that can overcome the physical violence. And the scripture says it comes by force. So to to keep on saying that, you know, the Bible, the, the religious people, they were so powerful as a way of saying, I am not going to treat my brothers today, my neighbors. This is a, This is an excuse for not treating people who don't look like you as a brother and sister, even though they treat you like one, as to say, well, I'm not going to treat you like a brother and sister because 
what has happened in the past to my people, I'm going to hold you responsible and your religion and your Bible. I just think it's absurd. Um, the reality is it's violence, and we need to put violence and, and identify the devil uh, as who he is and stop going to this mysterious God saying that this book and this spirit is um, is responsible for what happened to our African uh ancestors and our Native American ancestors and our religiously persecuted white friends and slash or ancestors. Violence is the one underlying um, common denominator in all of this oppression. Very much in agreement with that. I, I, I really appreciate your comments. I'd like to share something that's going to sound like a real sidebar. My wife is from uh, Peru, and the very first Inca uh, was Manco Capac. And when he was preparing, he knew that he was getting old, getting on in years. And when he taught his sons, he told them, conquer with love instead of fear, and treat others as you would want to be treated. Now, they had no Bible. <laughs> they had no Bible. And yet I mm -hmm. believe the Holy Spirit, you know, was impressing upon the, the, the truth on, 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 on all kinds of peoples. I know the uh, Mormons teach, um, and I, I hope I don't get this wrong, um, that there were books or the angel, uh, there was an angel that communicated with the early Native Americans. There, there was some association there. Um I, based on my experience with the the Inca, you know what I what I seem to think or see is that that spirit or the great spirit, as as natives are fond of saying, was working in the hearts of all men. And what what a country we would have had if Native Americans and blacks and whites and anybody else came here and worshipped together. What a mm -hmm. country we would have today if we could have come together and worshipped together and become that one beautiful people that John Adams thought we would have become. But we also know that there is a devil afoot roaring like a uh, lion seeking whom he may devour mm -hmm. and oppressing people and using individuals to circumvent God's will and try to corrupt things. And so... We have a very mixed history of blessings and curses. We have great things that we can look at our country's history and say, wow, what a great country we have had that mm -hmm. we share. We have rights and liberties that no other country enjoys. And yet, we have very dark chapters. We have very hideous events in our past with hanging. And present. And present going on right now, too. Absolutely. Right. So, so we I, have I, to put the blame where it needs to be you know, placed. Go ahead. And, and today I think that we are in a in a period that, that is referred to as the postmodern age. And our young people are, are, are trapped in this here and now. And they don't think the past, and in fact, the, the, you have these little silly sayings on Facebook, you know, the, the past is gone, the future isn't here yet, just live for today. And I think that's just what Satan wants us to be, is living for today only. 
but it's only those of us that look to the past and see where we've gone and where we've come from. We can see, look to the future. We can see where God wants us to be, that we can walk on a right path where we love one another and, and, and help one another, and we become truly God's people, and, 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 and then we are a one people. But the most beautiful thing, I'm also a teacher, um, that I get to witness on a daily basis is I, where I work, there are about five different um, places of worship from different faiths. And in my classroom, I have students who talk about their different religions, and they're still young. And I enjoy it because I know when they become adults, as I am right now, it's very hard to have the same conversations you're having as a youngster um, about religion and faith because, um, you know, they will soon be corrupt uh, by society saying that there are differences with these, um, these faiths and that these religions are the root of all the evil. Um, that is going on. So many of them will probably uh, turn from um, practicing whatever religion because of an incident uh, that may have happened. And and I just want to bring home that whatever faith you had just drawing you to brotherly love, then you're on the right on the right um, path, like you you said. Anything you want to say, Preston, before we get. Mr. Dwight Thompson, the last word. Well, um, I guess my uh, my take on it is that I have viewed and do view a a huge discrepancy between religious principle and versus religious practice. I think that's probably all I want to say about that. Mm-hmm. Okay, and there's one script. Because there's only one religion that is um, looked upon positively by God, and that is the one who takes care of the orphans and the most vulnerable people in our society. That is the only one true society, I mean, the only one true religion. Anything else that calls itself a religion is frowned upon. And, and that's what I have to say. Mr. Thompson, how would you like to close? I would like to close by thanking you for the opportunity to. Uh uh, to join you in this discussion, it's, it's very meaningful, and I hope for any of any of those that are listening, I encourage them to read books, uh, particularly get primary sources, you know, and learn the real history, learn it from the words of the people who lived it, not other people's opinions of it, but read what they actually uh, thought and talked about themselves, and. We'll come to understand that, yes, we have both good and bad in our history, but uh, we'll understand that God has a purpose for each one of our lives, and our our highest goal is to please him. And I just want to thank you for the opportunity to share. Thank you, uh, Dwight, and I look forward to having you on the show again, and we will expand this conversation. It's really been enlightening, and you have a great week. You too. God bless. And you too. And and bye-bye. Have a good night.